0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I promise. Next week, we're going to get into a little bit more of how we do evangelism and how we share our faith and how it all works. But I'm kind of laying this theological foundation. And so, the the whole theme we were talking about the past couple weeks is that God is establishing His kingdom through covenant. Okay? And so, we started back in um, Genesis chapter 1. And what was the first covenant that we looked at last week? It was the covenant of works... So I'll just put covenant up here. It was a covenant of works, and that was where Adam, and we talked a little bit about this on Sunday morning, where Adam was was commanded that he could eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He couldn't eat of it, and the day that he ate of it, he would surely die. die okay, and what happened? He ate of it and brought sin into the world. And so the second thing that God did was a covenant of grace or a covenant of redemption in Genesis 3.15 where God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so this whole idea of the seed of a woman being introduced. And so it's very important that we trace the offspring of this seed through the Bible to get to Jesus. And so you have Adam, and then it goes to Seth, and then it goes to Noah. And then, I mean, there's, there's people in between there, but the major characters. And then it goes down to Abraham. And that's kind of where we left off last week. Um, we did the, the Noah Covenant. God made a covenant with Noah that, with the rainbow that he would never flood the earth again. And then at the end of Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel where the world's in chaos. And then God does the Abrahamic Covenant where he starts over again with one man to form a, a nation. Okay. And so that's kind of where we're looking at. So we we did the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, covenant of Noah, and then we kind of started the Abrahamic covenant. And then if we get there tonight, the next one's Mosaic, Moses. And then the next one is David, the Davidic covenant. And then the seventh is the new covenant, which leads all the way up to Jesus. So if we want to trace the major characters, Adam, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then all the way culminates in Jesus as the ultimate promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15 of the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so this whole idea of God's kingdom through the covenants starts in Genesis and goes all the way through Revelation. So what is the kingdom of God? You guys help me remember. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. And so um, we'll see that all the way through there. So let's just real quickly go to Genesis, not real quickly, we're going to be in Genesis for a while. Genesis chapter 12, and let's look at the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant that we started to look at last week where God made a promise, a one-sided promise with Abraham that he would do something great in his life. So Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to be in Genesis and in Exodus and all over the Old Testament. And you guys may think I have like a fascination with Genesis because that's like where we're hanging out. And so I have to admit, I kind of do have a fascination with Genesis right now. That's why we're going through it on Sunday mornings. We're kind of dealing with it on Wednesday nights. And we'll eventually get it, get out of Genesis. And maybe, I think I told you last week, I may be preaching Revelation after Genesis. So, um, you know. I'll just preach the whole Bible, Genesis, then Revelation. So that may be a couple years down the road. I have to get the guts up to, teach, to preach the Revelation on a Sunday morning. Cause... all right, Anyway, Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here's the promise. Here's the very first of the Abrahamic covenant. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are seven blessings in that little blessing. There's seven things that God promises to do. And so ultimately, the big promise here is of being a nation, a great nation, a name that's great. He's going to be a blessing. And so the very first thing that we see that God makes a covenant with Abraham is you're going to be a great nation. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is one large covenant with four major movements. So the covenant is kind of... And remember, a covenant is like an agreement that God enters into with His people. And so the Abrahamic covenant, I believe, is really... There's four parts to it. It just kind of, it kind of builds upon each other. So we see the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. And then in Genesis 15, we see the cutting of the covenant. Well, We'll look at that in just a moment. And then in Genesis 17, we see the circumcision as the outward sign of the covenant. And then in Genesis 22, we see this whole picture of of, of, um, Abraham's obedience up on Mount Moriah. So, let's go to Genesis 15, and let's look at this very interesting little passage of Scripture where God enters into the cutting of a covenant with Abraham. So, let's pick up in chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So what's Abraham concerned about? What was the promise that God originally gave to Abraham? You will have. You'll be a great nation. You'll have these many descendants. And Abraham is almost like, like what, almost 100 years old, and he hasn't had any kids yet. His wife's 90 years old. It's kind of like, okay, they're, they're no spring chickens anymore. They're they're kind of past the childbearing age. And so Abraham's thinking, God, are you going to come through on your promise? You promised me that I would have this great nation. Where, where's the promise, God? Because this, the time's running out. God, you don't know what you're doing. And 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 actually. Um, in chapter 16, we won't have time to look at it. Abraham takes matters into his own hands and tries to speed up the process by having you know, their relationship with Hagar and then Ishmael's birthed and all that kind of stuff. But look, look at what it said here in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall be your offspring. Okay, so let's look at this first motif here that God tells Abraham, this metaphor. What what does God tell Abraham to do? Look up at what? The stars. stars. And so, you know, I'm I'm not sure if Abraham was doing twinkle, twinkle, little star, but, I mean, there's a lot of stars up there, right? And what does God say? All those stars that you see, that's how many descendants you're going to have. So, obviously, you know, we can't mathematically count, like, how many that is, but what is that? That's a great... Number Okay, so that's, a, that's a, a huge number, a huge number of offspring. Now, just hold that thought because we'll come back and ask, who, what's the identity of the offspring? Okay, but right now, God says, look up. And then there's a very important passage of Scripture that's quoted multiple times in the New Testament right there in verse 6. What does it say? He believed the Lord And he counted it to him as righteousness. It's very important. What did Abraham do? He believed God. And simply by his trust and his faith, God counted that to him as righteousness. Okay, so righteousness was given to Abraham. So righteousness was given to Abraham. How? Through faith. It wasn't anything Abraham did. It was simply what Abraham believed. Okay? Okay. Now, look at verse 7. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, what was the other promise? You'll have an offspring, but you'll also inherit the land. Okay, so there's a land promise. Not only is there an offspring promise, but there's a land promise. Okay, God's people in God's place. What's the, what's the land promise? It's the promised land. So Genesis was not only that you're going to have a huge offspring, a huge number of descendants, but you're also going to inherit the land. You're going to get the promised land. Okay? And so let's keep going. How am I to know that I shall possess it? Now listen to what God says to Abraham. It's very interesting. He said to him. Who said to him? God said to Abraham, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now what's this a prophecy of? Your, your offspring are going to be sojourners. What is a sojourner? You're, you're not, they're not going to have a land. They're going to be like pilgrims. They're going to be wanderers. And for 400 years, they are going to be in what? Slavery in Egypt. So we have the Exodus prophesied right here in Genesis chapter 7, or 15. God says to Abraham, your, your, your offspring are going to be in 400 years in a land not their own. They're going to be servants there. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to the fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and all those Ites. Okay? So, what was Abraham supposed to do? And I I, I don't have a table up here, but let's pretend like there's like an altar up here, right in the middle, okay? What's Abraham told to do? Kill some animals and do what? Chop them in half. Put one half on one side, put one half on the other side. Cut an animal in half. Okay, Abraham does that. And then what happens after Abraham does that? He's asleep. Okay, he's asleep. So is Abraham called on to do anything other than just obey and cut? Okay, so God's doing this, right? And God's prophesying to Abram that the, the Israelites are going to be in a foreign land for 400 years. And then what's this imagery that we see? A smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between the two pieces now what in the world is that it's this whole yeah it's this whole imagery that god himself in the form of this fire is walking between the two pieces now that's symbolic of something you guys don't quite understand that is that my phone yeah i need to turn on vibrate um the two pieces represent two sides of the covenant when god cuts a covenant. He's not requiring Abraham to fulfill his end of the covenant because Abraham's asleep. What God is saying is, I'm going to pass through the covenant. And if I don't, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, if I don't get you into the land, if I don't give you offspring, then, then I'm going to, these curses are going to come down upon me. Okay, does that make sense? So he's cutting a covenant with Abraham. And God himself is passing through as a symbolic way of saying, I'm holding up my end of the covenant. And so the promise there is that God would give them the land. Now, listen to what Ray Vanderland, you guys ever heard of Ray Vanderland? He's the, he's the um, that the world may know, focus on the family. He goes to the Holy Land and does all these videos. This is what he describes. I like the way he describes it. He says this, when God made a covenant with his people, he did something no human being would have ever considered doing. In the, unusual, in the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. So when you made a blood covenant, you had to keep your side, I had to keep my side. If I messed up on my side, things would go bad. If the other person messed up on their th- side, things would go bad. So it's a two-sided thing. But notice what he says. When God made covenant with Abraham, however, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. If this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or for yours, I will pay the price. And God said, if you or your descendants for whom you're making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. At that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. Because do we know, did Israel keep up their end of the bargain? No. And so God was going to keep up his end, even though there had to be a blood sacrifice. And eventually it came through Jesus. So this covenant that God's cutting with Abraham, stars like offspring. You're going to get the promised land, the, prom- the, the, the prophecy of 400 years in Egypt. Abraham believed it, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God cuts this covenant. God makes this covenant and says, may the curses fall upon me if I don't, if I don't keep my end of it. Now, the, the question is, is God going to fail to keep his end of the covenant? No, God's, God's going to keep his end of the covenant. Okay, now, let's go to Genesis chapter 17. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. But in Genesis chapter 17, God institutes circumcision. Now, we're all adults here. Now, if I had middle school girls in here and try to explain to them what circumcision is, sometimes that's a little embarrassing. But circumcision was the outward sign that they were God's people. And what's circumcision? It's the cutting off... Of excess now there's a lot of debate about why circumcision um, and, and the real question is if it's a public sign how did people know you were circumcised <laughs> after eight days you had to be circumcised and so um, a lot of people think that you know when you got married that they had to inspect to make sure that you were a true Jew or whatever so anyway this whole idea of of, of, of circumcision so what was the sign of Of the Noah covenant. The sign of the Noah covenant was what? The rainbow. What was the sign of the covenant of works? It was the Sabbath. Here we have circumcision. I don't know if that's how you spell it, but circumcision. Circumcision. You guys know how to spell it. Circumcision is the outward sign that they were God's people. And in chapter 17, God promises that they're going to be, that Abraham's going to be the father of a multitude of nations. He promises that Isaac's going to be born. And then Isaac is born. Isaac is the one and only son of Abraham, the son of the promise. He is the seed of the woman. And then in Genesis chapter 22, you've got the whole story of Abraham being told by God to go up and sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. And so they go up the mountain and they build the altar and um, Isaac's carrying the wood on his back and he gets up there and, and he says, Dad, I see we've got fire. I see we've got wood, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham knows all along his son's going to be the sacrifice, but, but, but notice what, let, let's pick up and see where, um, yeah, verse, 17, verse 7, Genesis 22, verse 7. Genesis 22, verse 7, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And then verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on top of the altar on the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. Instead of his son, Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So that's a picture there of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Instead of sacrificing his son, there's a ram that gets sacrificed. In Jesus, what's the opposite? Instead of not sacrificing Jesus, Jesus is sacrificed in our place. Now, the interesting thing that Moses does when he writes Genesis is he gives you a hint. Because what's God God testing Abraham to do? Go up and sacrifice your only son. But go look at verse um, 4 and 5. Genesis 22, 4 and 5. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. What's Abraham saying there? We're going to come back down the mountain. Well, I thought, you just told, I thought God, you just told me to kill my son. What did Abraham believe? Yeah, Either God would provide, or even if he killed his son, his son would be raised from the dead. Now, how do I know that? I'm glad you asked, Sean. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, because the New Testament tells me that. It's good when the New Testament tells you like what gaps are left out in the Old Testament. So if you go to Hebrews chapter 11... Verse 17, Hebrews eleven seventeen. 17, you find out that Abraham's faith was amazing. Because at that point, had anybody ever been raised from the dead? No. Um, it's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, is what it is. Whether, whether Abraham literally killed Isaac and God raised him from the dead, or whether God would provide a substitute. The whole picture of Jesus is there. So look at Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall be your offspring name. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So what did Abraham believe? Even if I kill my son, God has the power to raise him from the dead. Okay, so in the Abrahamic covenant, what do we see? I should be, we see the kingdom of God. You have God's people now. Who are God's people now? Specifically, the nation of Israel, the Israelites. You got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's sons make up the 12 tribes of Israel. So you've got God's people. Where, where's the place that they're at now? Is it, is it the Garden of Eden anymore? No, it's the, the promised land, a geographic piece of, of, of real estate that's actually there that you can go to today. And what's the other part of God's kingdom? It's God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. What were they to be? They were to be a blessing to the nations and the seed through which Christ would eventually come. So Israelites from the very beginning were not to hoard the message of of the gospel—they were to be a hope to the nations; they were to be a to light to the nations. They were. Abraham was promised that through you and through the Israelites, the nation would be blessed, the whole world would be blessed. And then the physical sign here is um, circumcision, physical circumcision. Okay, so let's go to Revel. Let's go to uh, Romans chapter four. So in the Abrahamic covenant, that God keeps building His kingdom. So. Started with Adam, then there's grace, then there's Noah, now we come to Abraham. And the question is let's ask a question. Who are Abraham's descendants? Sounds like an easy question, doesn't it? Who are his physical ethnic descendants? The Israelites. Who are the real true descendants of Abraham, his spiritual descendants? Well, I would, I would say Christians, both Jew and Gentile. So even Abraham, his, his real descendants are not just Jewish people, but they're anybody who has faith like Abraham in, in Christ. So let's look at Romans chapter 4. Um, verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Did we just not see that? Back. Okay. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness that's the gospel right there the gospel of free grace what's he saying in verse 4 if you work what do you get a paycheck okay they're given to you as a paycheck not as a gift your boss doesn't come to you and say hey you've worked for 40 hours this week and i really think it'd cool you know let me give you a gift here's your paycheck i mean it's not a gift is it it's what you earned okay In salvation, can we earn our salvation? Can we work for our salvation? No. And he says right there, look at verse 5. To the one who does not work, but does what? Trusts or believes, has faith. It is the one who's justified. It's the one who's counted righteous. This is the true following in the footsteps of of Abraham of having that faith. Um, Also in Galatians, we find out that... um, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So who's Abraham's true offspring? Those who, both Jew and Gentile, who are Christians who believe in Jesus. Now, let's ask another question who's the offspring of Abraham the Israelites right Christians both Jew and Gentile well now we're going to get really confused because what if I add another one in there that's like the real offspring who's the the real offspring of Abraham okay Isaac let's look at Galatians 3.16 now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring who is Christ. So Abraham has a lot of offspring, doesn't he? He's got Isaac. He's got the Israelites. He's got us. But who's the ultimate one? Jesus. So if you trace that whole thing, what was Genesis 3.15? The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So there's this promise from the very beginning that the seed, this offspring from a woman, would come and crush Satan. And we see this theme repeated. It was given to Abraham. Who was the seed of the woman? Jesus. So all the way back in, in, um, in Genesis, in Abraham, in the Abrahamic covenant, you see the coming of Christ. And so as Christians, we are part of Abraham's people. We are God's people, the new Israel, in God's place. We're not not in the promised land right now. We're in the world of strangers and aliens awaiting like Abraham our future home in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you go to Hebrews 11, we don't have to go there, but Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Abraham was looking forward to heaven. So, under God's rule whoops, am I going backwards? Okay. Under God's rule and blessing through the seed of the woman promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that came through the blessing in Genesis 12 and was prefigured in the substitutionary ram in the thicket in Genesis 22. Okay, now let's talk about circumcision for just a moment. That's always a fun topic to talk about. Circumcision involves what? You guys told me earlier. It involves a cutting away, Right? And physical circumcision was an outward sign that the Israelites were God's people, right? You knew that you were an Israelite if you were circumcised physically. Okay. In the Old Testament, God also prophesied that there would be a spiritual circumcision. Okay, now what's a spiritual circumcision? What's a circumcision? It's cutting away. Of the foreskin. What's a spiritual circumcision? What would it be a cutting away of? Okay, it would be cutting away of a dead heart, of sin, of our old nature, anything that we were as a, as a sinner. God's going to come and He's going to promise to spiritually cut away those things and what's He going to do? He's going to make us, make us new. So we've got some verses in the Bible that in the Old Testament that talk about that. In Deuteronomy, God even promises it all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, and the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. It doesn't say God will circumcise your foreskin. It says God will circumcise your heart. And what was the result of that? You will, love Jesus, you will love God. You will have this relationship with God. Romans 2, 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And then in Colossians chapter 2, In him, speaking of Jesus, Also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. Okay? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them so there you have the abrahamic covenant so we've got the covenant of works with adam the covenant of grace in genesis 3 that promises the messiah the covenant with noah the covenant with abraham and now we're ready to move into my next powerpoint it's on a different powerpoint here the covenant with moses the mosaic covenant Okay. There we go. So let's turn to Exodus. We'll, we're out of Genesis now, okay, guys? So we're into Exodus. What is a covenant again, guys? A covenant is God entering into an agreement, a legally binding agreement, with his people. Some covenants require obedience, some covenants God does all on his own. So, in the covenant of works, what was the requirement? It was, the requirement was obedience. Adam had to obey. In the covenant of grace, did God require anything? No, he just promised that he would send a Savior. In the covenant with Noah, God said, I'm not going to flood the earth ever again and gives a rainbow. In the covenant with Abraham, it's mixed. <laughs> Abraham had to go up and sacrifice Isaac. Abraham had to circumcise, but God also made these promises. So, when we get to the Mosaic Covenant... You really have this whole idea that God is requiring of the nation obedience. So the Mosaic covenant is a covenant of works in, in the biggest sense. So let's turn to Exodus 19. They're, they're at the base of Mount Sinai. Okay, they've been led out of Egypt. What did, what did Moses, what was Abraham, when he, Abraham was asleep, we just look at what did, what did God say to him? What happened? Israelites would be four hundred years in captivity. So they were four hundred years in captivity. Moses comes and says, "Let my people go." To Pharaoh, you have the plagues, you have the Passover, you have the Red Sea. You got the going through the Red Sea. You got the little bit of wandering in the wilderness. And here they are at the base of Mount Sinai, and God's going to give them the Ten Commandments. Okay, so we're moving into the the Mosaic Covenant. Really, if you think about it, is 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 the Ten Commandments? You know, that that whole idea. So let's look at at. at um, Chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom, of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, is this a conditional covenant? What's the condition? What does God say to them? You have to obey and keep my covenant. If you obey and you keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured people. Okay? For all the earth is mine. So there's a condition that... Israel has to uphold. Okay, just look over Deuteronomy real quick. Go to Deuteronomy. We'll come back to Exodus because Exodus and Deuteronomy are real similar. It's just Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law to the new generation that, of the previous generation that died in the wilderness in, in Numbers. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, I mean, Deuteronomy 4, yeah, Deuteronomy 4 5 through 8. So Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord, our God, is to us wherever we call upon, whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I've set before you today? So Moses is saying to the people, You will remain God's people if what you obey. Now, what what we're going to find out is that they really don't have a good time doing that. Um, This is the covenant of works. Israel had to hold up their end of the covenant by obedience. If they did, they can continue to live in the promised land. That was the condition. You obey the law, you get to live in the promised land. But if you don't obey, if you don't follow my laws, if you don't worship me, you'll endure the curses of the covenant and you'll be kicked out of the land. So you've got the land promise here. So you got God's people, the Israelites, in God's place, the land, under God's rule and God's blessing. But what's the issue? If they don't obey, what will happen to them in the land? They will get kicked out. What happened to Adam and Eve when they disobeyed the covenant of works? They got kicked out. Okay, so there's this imagery of obedience, things will go great, disobey, you get kicked out. Okay? So... Um, God basically chooses Israel to be his son. So Israel is considered the son of God. And let me ask you a question. Was there anything great or moving or beautiful or noteworthy or praiseworthy about Israel that would make God choose Israel? God did not choose Israel because they were a wonderful group of people. Turn over a few more chapters here in Deuteronomy 7. You, you find out why God chose Israel. And this helps you understand why God chose you, in case you begin to get a little arrogant, and you begin to get a little um, hoity-toity, and think, man, I God was really good to pick me to be on his team. I mean, if you get that attitude. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, therefore, know the Lord, your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them he will not be slack with the one who hates him he will repay him to his face you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that i command to you today why did god choose israel because he loved them well why did god love them because he loved them so the question is why does god choose anybody to be saved because god chooses for people to be saved Well, why does god love us because god loves us is there anything in us that makes God love us? No, it's because God loves us. It's not us that makes God love us. It's God, in, that God is love, that makes him, that's kind of a weird way to put it, that, that moves God to love us. Okay, does that make sense? So Israel wasn't like this great nation. They, were, they weren't powerful. They were just um, kind of disobedient. Not kind of, but really. Now, there are six aspects to the Mosaic Covenant. If you look at the Mosaic Covenant, this big covenant, there, there's six aspects to it that, that we won't look at all we won't look at all of the scriptures, but I'll give those to you. There's a covenant mediator in Moses. Okay, this is important. What's a covenant mediator? God is choosing one man to be the one to stand between the people and God. Okay, so what's a mediator? A go-between. A go-between. So you've got a holy God, you got a holy God. And you got a sinful people. The big question of the Bible is, how do these sinful people have a relationship with the holy God? And with Moses here in this time period, Moses is the covenant mediator. Moses is the go-between through the sacrificial system and the priesthood that actually stands as the mediator. Now, let's talk about how it is today. Who's the mediator between the holy God and sinful people? Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses. Okay, because Moses was just a man. But there still is one mediator between God and man. And we see the prototype here in Moses. Okay, there's a promise of a theocracy. Now, what's a theocracy? It's just a big fancy word for we're a democracy. What's a democracy? Rule by the people. people. A theocracy is, theos is the word for God. It's ruled by God. So it's, a, it's God's people under God's rule and God's blessing. This is like... The only time Israel... Now, think about this. Some people say America used to be a Christian nation, or America was a Christian nation. There's only been one nation ever on the history of the earth that ever was truly a Christian or whatever nation. It was Israel, because it was a theocracy, meaning every single person that was part of that nation had to obey the laws of God. Now, our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and our nation was founded on a lot of... um, Christian values, but never has our nation mandated to every single person as part of the United States that you have to believe the Bible and you have to obey the Ten Commandments. Because in Israel, if you didn't do that, you were stoned. They don't do that here. So Israel, under God's rule and God's blessing, the only Christian nation to ever live, how did they do? Not so good, Not so good. okay? All right, number three. There's a stipulation of the covenant. We talked about that. What's the stipulation? Obedience. We will obey. Okay? The covenant is ratified with blood and a Passover meal. It's very important. You see the Passover is the prototype there of the Lord's Supper, all the types and shadows in the blood of Christ, the Lamb. The covenant focuses on a central place of worship now. What's going to be happening now? Worship is going to be centralized to where? a tabernacle, and then later on a temple. God's going to choose to have a portable tent where he's going to come and meet with his people. And then the sign of the covenant is Sabbath. Israel was the only nation in the world that had a Sabbath. No other nation had the Sabbath. And it was part of the Ten Commandments. And so the sign that they were God's people not only was circumcision, but it was also Sabbath. So so think about how weird Israel was. What was the weird thing? All right, so think about things we take for granted about Israel, but it was really weird to that culture. We're going to cut off our foreskin. We're going to eat blood. Not eat blood, but we're going to pour blood over our doorpost, and we're going to sacrifice a... A, um, a lamb and then that's going to remind us of when God got us out of slavery we're going to have a theocracy where God is our leader and we're going to have this little portable tent that goes around where God's going to show up and we have to obey these ten rules that come down on these pieces of, of stone and, you have to keep one day separate. and one day separate out of all the other days now we look at that and think okay we've kind of grown up understanding that that was radical for that world because nobody else had that but what did God say you are to be a holy nation a peculiar people. Now, as Christians today, do people look at us as peculiar people? They look at us and say, you guys are weird. You guys are strange. You go to a place where you hear a guy talk out of a book, and you kind of live a little bit different than the rest of the world does, and you talk about this guy that came and died and rose again. He's supposedly alive today, and he's coming back on a white horse to take us all back one day and create everything new. And that's what you guys believe. I mean, that's, I mean, we take it for granted that that's the gospel, but there's people who are like, you guys are crazy. Same thing with Israel. Israel was looked at as crazy by the world, the world around them. Now, let's look at the Ten Commandments, because let's go back to Exodus 20. And I always ask a twit tw- question. I sound like Elmer Fudd. A twick <laughs> question, wabbit. You waskily wabbit, you. Um, Exodus chapter 20. How, and I'll ask the question, how do the Ten Commandments start? Okay. I did not ask what is the first of the Ten Commandments. I said, how do the Ten Commandments start? The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before you, but how do they start? Well, let's look at Exodus 20 because we get this backwards. You will see the pattern in Exodus 20 of how God operates. Okay? So Exodus 20. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Before the first of the Ten Commandments, what is God saying? I am your... Basically, I've saved you by grace, okay? I have saved you out of bondage. I have saved you by grace. I am the Lord. So what comes first? Does grace come before law or does law come before grace? In the Ten Commandments, why are they to obey? Are they to obey to earn God's favor or are they to obey because God has already redeemed them? They were saved first and then They were to obey. If you get this the other way around, if you obey first and then you get saved, then what do you have here? You have a works-based salvation. So from the very beginning, even in the context of the Ten Commandments, God sets it up with grace first saying, I have saved you. I have redeemed you. I have delivered you out of Egypt. I am your Lord. In light of my salvation by grace... In light of what I've done for you in redemption, now, therefore, I'm giving you ten things to obey. So let's look at the Ten Commandments. And let's not look at them. Let's see if we've got them memorized. You guys have memorized in order? We'll see how good you guys are with the Ten Commandments, okay? I bet you if we were to go out on the street today and say, name ten, um, name ten teams in the top ten of the BCS, or name ten of your top favorite beers, or name ten of your top favorite soft drinks, everybody would be able to name ten of them, right? How many of you guys can name the Ten Commandments? In order. Okay, so close your Bibles. No, I, I'll, you guys help me. Number one, you don't have to close your Bibles. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make a God in a graven image. Number three, you shall not use the Lord's God name in vain. Number four, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. Number five, you shall honor your father and mother. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not bear false witness. Nine, you shall not steal. No, I think we got those mixed up. Steal is after murder. Yeah, steal is, steal is after adultery. You shall not bear false witness, and then you shall not covet. Okay. So, you've got the Ten Commandments. Everybody talks about the Ten Commandments, but how many people actually know what they are? Now, here's the funny thing that you see in Israel. Go to Exodus twenty four for a minute. So God gives them the Ten Commandments. And Israel is all fired up because they've seen God on the mountain. And the mountain is shaked, and Moses has come down, and everything is really awesome. And the covenant's confirmed. So let's look at Exodus chapter twenty four. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So God's inviting Moses up on Mount Sinai. Moses came up and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You find that funny? What do they say? Everything that God has told us to do, we will do. And they're excited and they're charged up. We can obey. Give us 10, we can obey them. Every single one of them, we will do it. Verse 4, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who, uh, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of the oxen to the Lord, Um, all the way down, he took blood. Look at verse 8. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses is throwing blood on the people as a way to say, This is a serious thing. You're getting blood thrown on you. This is the blood of the covenant. You, You better obey this, and we're ratifying this in blood. And it's interesting, the people said, All of this we will do. And what do we know happened to Israel? Can you guys go look? If you look at... Where is it? Chap, that was in what? Chapter 24? What's in chapter 32? The golden calf. I mean, we're only talking... I can't do my math very well. What's that? It's like eight chapters later, and they're worshiping in an orgy, a golden calf, and Yeah. A, yeah, took a yeah. So let's ask the question: the question that we've got to ask, because everybody, you know, there's big arguments. Should the Ten Commandments be on how, you know, on public um, courthouses? And how do the Ten Commandments shape our worldview? Because sometimes we as Christians get so far, we don't want to talk about the Ten Commandments because that's all law, and we're under grace. Isn't that the old covenant? We're not under law, but we're under grace, so let's just throw out the Ten Commandments and talk about grace. You ever hear people say that? So let's ask the question, how does the Ten Commandments shape our worldview? Now, there's two extremes, and I'll give you some. The first one's kind of an easy one, legalism. What's legalism? The first extreme is you're making making up rules that aren't even in the Bible that people abide by. So give me an example of legalism. no playing cards, women can't wear pants to church, um, music, you can't wear makeup. Um, if you don't sing the same way, you know, if you don't use the same Bible translation as I do, if you don't dress the same way as I do, if you don't do the same way as I do, and there are a lot of cultural issues, not really biblical issues, then you're not part of our group. That's, that's one way to take the Ten Commandments and make it way over here. The other one is another word that you probably have never heard. It's called antinomianism. You're like, what in the world is antinomies? I don't care if you remember that word. It's the opposite of legalism. It's the whole idea that anything goes. Have you ever heard people say, I had somebody say to me the other day, I'm going to go ahead and sin, knowing that I'm going to sin, because afterwards I'm just going to ask God to forgive me. It's that kind of idea that, I've said this before, I love sinning. God loves forgiving. It's a great relationship. I'm just going to do whatever I want Because I got my free ticket to heaven. I'm not concerned about repentance. I know I'm going to go to heaven, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm not going to worry about the law or the rules. Okay? Now, let's talk about three major aspects to the law of Moses, okay? Because there's three types of law that you see in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, okay? The first type of law you see is the civil law. If you go through Exodus, if you go through Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you've got judicial laws in respect to civil government, how you operated in the courts, how the elders of the town came and settled disputes, judges, contracts, punishment for crime. The very same thing we have in our law. We have civil law today. You go to a court and there's judges and juries that try civil cases. In Israel, there were laws that dealt with civil issues. Okay? Secondly there were ceremonial laws. These were external solemn ordinances to be observed in the public worship of God under a theocratic nation state. So a ceremonial law would be like the cleansing law. Like for example, if you were a woman on your monthly, um, your little monthly friend, you couldn't stay in the camp You had to go outside the camp for seven days until you were clean and come back and present yourself to a priest. And you had to clean the mildew out of your home. It was all the ceremonial type things. And those were bound on everybody that lived in Israel. So it was was a theocracy where God said everybody has to abide by the civil rule. Everybody has to abide by the ceremonial rule as long as God is the king of your nation. Now there's the other type, which is the moral. These are the spiritual, internal, and external, eternal, and, and they usually focus on relationships. So let me ask you a question, the $10 million question. Which one of these three is still around today that's binding upon us? Okay. The moral. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't obey the civil law, but how many of you guys have gone to the elders of the gate and brought your donkey before them that accidentally caused manslaughter because you came around the corner with, a, with your ox out of control and you killed somebody and you went to have this settled by two elders from the tribe. Anybody do that today? No, we, we're not bound by the civil law. Anybody ever um, clean their house out of mildew every so that you could go worship in the temple? Now, hopefully you clean your house out of mildew. How many of you guys don't murder? How many of you guys don't commit? Okay, now here's a hermeneutical principle. This is the, the big and important principle. Interpret the Old Testament as it is interpreted by the New Testament. In other words, how do the New Testament writers interpret and explain and incorporate the law into the New Testament? So, civil and ceremonial are types and shadows of a new covenant which were bound by a theocracy and a geopolitical entity. The only law that's binding today upon us is the moral law because Jesus fulfilled the temple sacrifices and all the ceremonial laws and all the civil laws were fulfilled in Jesus. So we have to ask the question, what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments then? What's the purpose of the law today? Do we just throw it out and say, well, that was for the Old Testament, that was for another time and place? We really don't need to worry about it. Let's look at Galatians. Galatians 3.19 Because you'll have you'll have some well-meaning Christians say, "Well, you know, we're we're not under law; we're under grace. Let's just kind of do whatever we want." And then you have other people that elevate things that aren't law to law and become legalistic and guilt people into it. Okay. Um, where am I going with this? Okay, yeah. Galatians 3.24. Well, let's start back in verse 23. Galatians 3.23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was our guardian. Now, I'm going to give to you guys the three functions of the law, the Ten Commandments. How do the, how, do the, how do the Ten Commandments function today? There's three ways they function today. And when I use law, I'm talking specifically Ten Commandments. Number one, God has put the Ten Commandments in place first and foremost to curb anarchy in society. Okay, so a biblical worldview would say we need the Ten Commandments in a civil society so that people don't kill each other, steal from each other, commit adultery on each other, lie to each other. We need to have a civil, non-chaotic, non-anarchic society, and so the Ten Commandments is there. Now, our nation was built upon the Ten Commandments, are you? and so we still have hopefully some semblance of Ten Commandments built into our culture just to make sure that we don't live in a chaotic society. Okay. But the second thing that the law has is this. It shows us this is before we're pre-conversion, before we're saved. The law is a harsh taskmaster, not for moral sanctification, but to show us our utter depravity and culpability before the Father. So, to a lost person, to a lost person, they need to have the law preached to them. Why? What do they need to be able to see? What does a lost person need to be able to see? What does the law do for a lost person? It shows them that they are sinful, that they are a lawbreaker, that they stand condemned, they stand guilty. Does the law in any way provide salvation? What does it do? The law brings, what I would say is this, it brings this awareness and this conviction that you need salvation. So one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments is to show people that they have not lived up to God's law, that they are sinners, and that they need Jesus, and they can't save themselves, and they come to the end of the rope saying, I could never do this. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody in this room obeyed the Ten Commandments 100% of the time, 100% of them, every day of your life? Could you ever even begin to? Okay, so when you start to think about that, how does it make you feel? I could never live up to this standard. I could never not do this. I could never be perfect. I can never obey the Ten Commandments, even though no matter how hard I tried, I can never be perfect. And what is that supposed to produce within you? A feeling of despair, hopelessness, guilt. I can't be perfect. I can't do this. And that's exactly what it's supposed to do to you. It's supposed to bring you to the point where you're at the end of your rope saying, I can't save myself. I need Jesus to do this. Okay? So once you become a Christian, the question is, okay, what's the role of the law then when you become a Christian? And we can look at those scriptures. You can go look at those later on. Post-conversion, yeah, it serves a role in the sanctification of the person once regenerated as a new believer. So let me ask you a question. Anybody here want to throw out the Ten Commandments once you become a Christian? Well, now that we're a Christian, we don't have to obey them. Do you obey the Ten Commandments to get saved? You obey the sin commandments because you're saved. And you don't do it in order to earn brownie points with God. You do it because you love Jesus and he gives you the power to do it. Okay? So let's look at Galatians 5.14. Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So does he talk about the law there? Yeah, the law is fulfilled in one word. You should love the neighbors yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Now go down to the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Okay, so here's the conclusion about how the Ten Commandments relate to us as Christians. As believers, in a sense, we are not under the law for our justification, in the sense we're, we don't obey the law to get saved, but we are still commanded as Christians to obey the ethical commands of the law as an outworking of our sanctification. Now, let me ask you a question. When I say the word law, what do you automatically think of? What we've been talking about, right? The what? The 10... Are there more than ten commandments in the Bible? Are there commandments in the New Testament? A lot of commandments in the New Testament. So the law of God is really just any commandment that God commands us to do something. So the law is all through Genesis to Revelation. You have law. Law is just what God commands us to do. We just need to understand our relationship to that. We can't do it unless we are saved and we have the Holy Spirit in us to give us the power to do that. And we don't do it in order to get saved, but as a result of salvation. Does, does that make sense? Okay, so in the Mosaic Covenant, you've got what's called the Mosaic Law or the Ten Commandments. Now, let's go to the Davidic Covenant. Let's totally switch gears and go to Second Samuel chapter 7. And like I said last week, guys, we're laying this theological foundation of all these covenants so that we can build a case for having a worldview of kingdom through covenant. And then next week, we're going to kind of get into how do we do evangelism? How do we, um, how do we build bridges with our culture? How do we understand our culture? So let's look at um, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the, the covenant that God makes with David. So we've seen the covenant of works. Covenant of grace, the covenant of Noah, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant with Moses. Now we're with the covenant with David, or what's called the Davidic covenant. So 2 Samuel. Let's start in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all this in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, what's David worried about? David's living in his own house. But where's the ark of the covenant? It's still in the tabernacle, still like in a tent. And David's thinking to himself, this isn't right. I'm living in this nice house, this nice cedar house as the king. I'm living in the king's palace. But God's ark of the covenant is out there in a tent. I need to build God a house. Let's build God a house, a permanent house, so it doesn't have to be in a tabernacle where God can dwell. So that's what, that's what David's thinking. And then Nathan says, if, if, if your heart's in it, the Lord's with you. So look at verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought you up, the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving it about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So what's God saying? I don't really need a house. I'm God. It's nice, David, you want to build for me a house, but I've been in a tent, and really, you can't confine me to a house. Whether I'm in a tabernacle or whether I'm in a temple, I'm the one that sets the rules, and you really can't confine me to a house. So... David, you want to build for me a house. God turns the tables on David and says, let's do it the other way around. David, I'm going to build for you a house. And not, not a physical house, but a, what's the house a metaphor for? A dynasty, a kingdom. So let's keep going here. Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you whenever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. Does that sound familiar? It's like a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a palace, or I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, there's the terminology again, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So what does God say to David? David. You're going to always have descendants on the throne. I'm going to make for you a dynasty. You will have a son. You will have a perpetual dynasty. And notice what he says there in verse 14. I will be to him as a father and he shall be to me as a son. What does that sound like? Who's the father and who's the son? It's like a prophecy of Jesus. But it's also talking about Solomon who's actually literally going to build the temple. So David is called to fulfill the Mosaic covenant back in Deuteronomy 17. If you go back to Deuteronomy 17, the king, when when God said there's going to be kings in the land, the king was to have the the law of God next to his throne that he can consult it every day and rule the nation under God's laws. And that's what God is building here. Yet this is a one-sided covenant of grace. Grace. God personally guarantees that there will always be a son on the throne to be an eternal king. And the sign of this covenant is the birth of a son. So let's look at some some psalm, let's look at some passages of scripture here to talk about this son that would be born, that would come from David. Psalm 89, 3 through 4. Okay, so Psalm 89, this is where we get the word covenant. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So there in the Psalms, we've got this idea that God made a covenant with David and said you will have offspring forever, you will eternally have someone on the throne. Now what's the problem for Israel? What happened after the last king died and was taken off into exile? Did they ever have... A, has Israel ever had a king since then on the throne? I mean, Herod, when they talk about King Herod, he wasn't really a king. I mean, he was more of a puppet dictator that they... And he wasn't even... even it wasn't even from... Yeah. So Israelites are probably thinking, we've never had a king on the throne. Is God true to his promise? But what do we know about Jesus? He's the king, and he's going to reign on his throne. Uh, he's reigning right now, but one day, literally, reign on his throne. All right, go to Luke chapter 1, 31-33. Luke 1, 31-33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus... He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and, as of, and as of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the direct prophecy right there. that God made with David, you're going to have offspring that are, that are going to be on the throne forever. Right there the angel comes and says it's going to be Jesus. And then go to Acts real quick. Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's... Sermon at Pentecost, Acts two twenty nine through thirty one. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb was with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So here's what we have in David, guys. We have the ultimate outworking of the kingdom of God. Do we have God's people? Yeah, the nation's at its peak. They're no longer in um, Egyptian captivity. They no longer are in wandering in the wilderness. They're no longer with Joshua trying to conquest the land. They no longer have these judges. They no longer have a bad king, Saul. With David, they are at their peak. It's the height of the nation of Israel. Are they in God's place? Yeah, they're in the powerful, they're in the promised land. Not only are they in the promised land, but Jerusalem is now the capital and under Solomon the temple's built. So, I mean, you've got God's people and God's place at their height because you've got Jerusalem as the capital. You've got the temple being built. You've got the nation at peace. You've got King David. Are they under God's rule and God's blessing? Yeah, it's mediated through the offices of prophets, priests, and kings. You had the prophets that were speaking to the people. You had David, who was the king. And you had priests that were doing the temple sacrifices. So the nation, and just for a very short period, if you think about, like, the nation at its peak, there's a very short period where the nation's at its peak. God's people, God's place. But what happens with David? Is he a perfect king? He has adultery with Bathsheba, commits murder, things start going downhill. You know, Solomon, to his credit, was a man of wisdom. And what did Solomon do? Solomon built the temple. But what happened to Solomon? He accumulated many wives. He got rich. And then his two the sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. What happened with those guys? The nation split. You had a northern kingdom and you had a southern kingdom you had civil war, and eventually the northern kingdom was taken off into Assyrian captivity, never to be heard of again. The south was taken into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. So did this nation at its peak last for very long? God's people under God's rule and God's blessing in God's place, not very long. So let's just review these, these, these P's we've been talking about. The pattern of the kingdom, where was that? In the Garden of Eden. What was the pattern? Adam and Eve in the garden under God's rule and God's blessing. It was the pattern. It was the prototype of the kingdom of God. God had ruled them. They lived in a perfect environment. Then you have the parish kingdom. What was that? Adam and Eve brought sin into the world. They were tempted by the serpent. They got kicked out of the garden. Sin was brought into the world. Cain kills Abel. Then you've got Noah because the world's so corrupt that God has to flood the earth. Then you've got the Tower of Babel chaos then you've got the promised kingdom the promised kingdom is that god would come and choose abraham he would make a promise with them they would have offspring as numerous as the sand on the seashore and stars in the sky they would be in the promised land you got isaac um, jacob you got the 12 tribes and then you've got the partial kingdom the partial kingdom is where they're um, in Exodus. God takes them out of Exodus through Moses. They're in the promised land. They enter the promised land, and then what we've seen, they, they're, they're, they're at their peak with King David and King Solomon with the temple, but then what happens? They split into civil war, and then you've got the prophesied kingdom. The prophets are, are working in both the northern and the southern kingdom, and they're prophesying about how there's going to be a day when the nation would come back and David would be restored to glory on his throne. And what did the prophets start talking about? Okay, so let's look at our history here. We've got, let's just do a real quick history of Israel or the Bible. Can we do a real quick history of the Bible? Okay, so you got what? You got creation. From creation, you go to Adam. And then you've got the fall. I'm going to run out of space here. You've got the fall. Then you've got Cain. Then you've got Noah and the flood. Then you've got the Tower of Babel. So in Genesis 1 through 11, you've gone from everything being good to everything being bad to chaos with everybody trying to make a name for themselves. Then in Genesis chapter 12... God does a recreation. What's the recreation in Genesis 12? He starts over with who? Abraham. And Abraham, you've got the Israelites. So you've got a new nation being built, the Israelites. And then under, under Moses, you've got the whole Passover, you've got... The Exodus, you've got them led out of the Red Sea. You've got the Ten Commandments. And then under Joshua, what happens? They go into the promised land. They conquer the promised land. And uh, they have a little bit of time of peace. But then they start getting taken over. And then God raises up judges. These aren't kings. These are just judges. or military rulers. And then you've got Samuel. And Samuel anoints who? David to be the king. And as we said earlier, Israel's at its peak You've got Jerusalem as the capital. You've got the Ark of the Covenant. And then under Solomon, you've got the temple being built. And everything seems to be great. You've got God's people and God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. And then everything goes south. And you've got the nation split into north. And you've got the nation split into south. And so you've got... And as a matter of fact, does anybody remember, in the northern kingdom, was there any good kings? There was not one good king... In the northern kingdom, they were all wicked kings that did wicked things. Now, in the southern kingdom, for the most part, a lot of wicked kings, there were maybe three or four godly kings. And so Israel is at a period of ultimate... They Are they under God's rule and God's blessing? No, they're split. Are they in God's place? No, they're split. Um, are they God's people? No, they're not acting like God's people. So who does God raise up? During the last half of this wicked period, he raises up the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, Daniel, Malachi. What are the prophets doing? The prophets are warning Israel that if they don't repent, they will be kicked out of the land and go into exile. And so during this period of the prophets, so David's off the scene, Moses is off the scene, Abraham's off the scene, they're in civil war, things are really bad. This is like, really bad time the prophets come and the prophets are going to prophesy about the new covenant in the midst of all the chaos in the midst of all the sin the prophets come along and say there's going to come a future day where god's going to institute a new covenant and the new covenant is going to be different than the old covenant so let's just look real quick we may not get to all of it. We probably won't get to all of it tonight. But let's go to Jeremiah 31. And let's look at what Jeremiah says the new covenant's going to look like. Because we've had the covenant of works. We've had the covenant of grace. We've had the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David. And it seems like it kind of reached its peak with David. And everything went south. And the prophets come on, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and say, Wait a minute. God's not through with you yet there's a new covenant. So let's see what this new covenant looks like. Jeremiah 31, 27 through 34. And is there a little title over your uninspired... What's the title in your uninspired heading in your Bible? Does it say the new covenant? Okay. Here we go. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. What is God saying? I made a covenant with them at at Sinai. Remember what they said? Remember Remember what we saw they said? All of this we will do. And God said, I came to Israel like their husband. They were to be my bride, but they have committed adultery they've divorced me, they've been idolatrous, they've left me, they've broken the covenant. So I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the one I made with them in Exodus, but I'm going to make a new one. And look at verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. What was the old covenant? External law on stone. God says in the new covenant, it's going to be spiritual. It's going to be internal. It's going to be about grace. It's going to be about regeneration. It's going to be a heart change that comes when God does something on the inside. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. So the new covenant deals with the forgiveness of sin, God being their God, God doing something different, God doing... It's moving from external. What are the externals that we've seen so far? What are the externals that we've seen in the Bible so far? Circumcision. Is that external? A temple. Is that external? Um, A rainbow. What are some other externals? We've seen the tabernacle. We've got... um, The Ten Commandments on stone. All these external things that God is going to, that God did externally in the Old Covenant. And God says in the New Covenant now, in the New Covenant, I'm going to do something internal, something spiritual on your heart. It's going to involve forgiveness. But one thing we need to understand is it's going to still involve blood. And it's still going to carry some of the elements of the Old Covenant. So there is going to be an issue of sacrifice. There is going to be blood. There is going to be this whole idea of something like a Passover. There is going to have to be a death. And so ultimately what the prophets are saying in the, in the New Covenant is that God is going to do something where he's going to have to have a blood sacrifice, but it's going to affect an internal change and in forgiveness. Now, did the prophets at that time know anything that it would be Jesus? Probably not, but they prophesied about Jesus. Let's go to Ezekiel real quick, just for the short amount of time we have. Ezekiel 36. this is one of my favorite Old Testament passages about what God's going to do. And if you're a Christian, God has done this to you already. But it was prophesied back in Ezekiel 36, 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I, look into all the eyes that God says he's going to do there. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What does God say he's going to do? I'm going to take out your dead, stony, evil heart, and I'm going to replace it with a new heart. That's an internal new covenant change now. God promises to do this internal change. What does the, the New Testament call it? Being born again. God's going to take, take us and cause us to be born again. But it's going to be a new covenant. Now, let's go to the New Testament real quick, and then we'll finish up. So you've got these Old Testament passages during the time of the prophets. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26, where... They prophesy that there's going to be a new covenant. And it's going to be unlike the covenant in the past. It's going to be internal. It's going to be spiritual. It's going to affect the heart. There's going to be a change of heart. God's going to put his Holy Spirit in us. But how is it it? What has to happen in order for the new covenant to be inaugurated, to be fulfilled? Matthew 26, 27. Matthew 26, 27. And he took a cup... And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what is Jesus doing when he's instituting the Lord's Supper? He's saying what was prophesied in the Old Testament with the new covenant is now happening, and it's going to be in blood And in just a few hours, I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to make possible the new covenant to come into being to where the Holy Spirit is now going to come and live inside you because of my death, my burial, and my resurrection. It's a new covenant in my blood. Um, Galatians 3.13, let's just look at that real quick. We may actually get done. Yeah, I may get done. Galatians 3.13. I know, guys, and thanks for being patient tonight. I know this is a lot of heavy stuff. But Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. What did Jesus do when he died on the cross? He reversed, he took the curse that we should have taken because there's no way that we could keep the old covenant. So, what's the sign of the new covenant? Like the old covenant, what was the sign? Sabbath circumcision, rainbow. What's the new covenant sign? It's tricky. I think there's three. It's somewhat tricky. I think there's, I think there's one, visible, one invisible and two visible. I think the first invisible sign is regeneration. The whole idea that God is going to cause us to be born again. Because what does the, the New Covenant promises say in Jeremiah and Ezekiel? God's going to come write it in our hearts. God's going to come change our hearts. God's going to cause a new heart change. He's going he's to give us a new life. We're going to be new creations in Christ. That's invisible. You, you really don't see that happen, but it's, the, it's, it's an invisible sign. The other two signs, I think, are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a sign that you've died to your old life and you've been raised again. And the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, what does Paul say? This is the new covenant in his blood when you drink of this and when you eat of this. So the present kingdom, we are in the present kingdom or the present kingdom came when Jesus, the present kingdom came when Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. So Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom. After Jesus died and rose and went back up into heaven, we are now in what's called the proclaimed kingdom. We are in the proclaimed kingdom time. We are proclaiming the kingdom of God to the world. Jesus is gone. Moses is gone. All the, all, the old, all the old parish kingdom and prophesied kingdom, we are now in the period where we are proclaiming the kingdom until what? What's going to happen? How long do we proclaim the kingdom? Until Jesus, until Jesus comes back. And then what's going to happen when he comes back? We will have the perfected kingdom. What's the perfected kingdom? The perfected kingdom is in Revelation 21 and 22 where we see God's people. Let's just look at it here. The storyline theme of the Bible. God's people and God's place under God's rule and God's blessing is what unifies the entire Bible. So in Revelation 21 and 22, do you have the perfected kingdom? Where do you have the new heavens and the new earth where we are under God's rule and God's blessing? So think about how the Bible has a beginning, middle, and beginning. You guys thought it was a beginning, middle, and end. The Bible starts with the garden, with the tree of life, with perfect intimacy with God. And then it ends in the new heavens and the new earth with the tree of life and perfect intimacy with God. God's people in God's place, under God's rule and God's blessing. And my final question to you is, does this storyline of kingdom impact your worldview? And I know that's a lot to take in the kingdom of God through covenants. If there's one thing that I just want you to remember out of everything that we've talked about, I don't care if you remember all the different covenants and all the intricacies, but the main thing is that are you and me, are we living as God's people? Do we, do we function as God's people? If people don't look at us, do they say those are God's people? In God's place, wherever God's placed you, all of you have a different place, and are you under His rule and His blessing? Living out what God has called you to do. That's the main thing I want us to remember. And then the the storyline from Genesis to Revelation is all about how God has been pushing that theme to culminate in Jesus as the final, ultimate expression uh, of everything that started back in Genesis and will end up at the end. So Jesus is from Genesis to Revelation. So next week, we're going to talk about how do we relate to culture? How do we help people think about these things? How do we do evangelism? How do we share our faith? How do we understand this postmodern wacky culture? How do you start conversations with people spiritually to kind of find out where they are in their worldview and things like that? So that's where we're going next week. A little bit more practical next week on how do you actually do this. Okay? Uh, I left you two minutes late. So let me pray for us and then we'll let you go. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather tonight. And and Lord, thank you that you have created a storyline from Genesis to Revelation that is so unified. Um, and it shows us Jesus from beginning to end and how we need to be God's people and God's place under God's rule and God's blessing with our eyes fixed on you, Jesus. So help us this week to live in light of the kingdom of God as we proclaim the gospel to a world that needs to understand it as we live under your lordship. let me pray this in Jesus' name, amen.